started this morning. <clears throat> this is going to be our last session in the study of Isaiah. It's really no, not a complete study of Isaiah that we've been looking at, but just simply selected topics that are suggested in the book of Isaiah. So that's why we call it studies in Isaiah rather than the study of Isaiah. <clears throat> Next Sunday, I understand they're going to be beginning a new series on the parables. So we look forward to coming back and being in that class. And I'm not aware who the teacher is going to be. I just learned just a few moments ago that the subject is going to be on, on the parables. So <clears throat> we'll wind up uh, this uh, series, this particular series, by looking at a section that I'm calling the God of all time. And we'll uh, go through that and explain what is uh, involved in that. So let's go ahead and, uh, and open our class with a word of prayer. <clears throat> We're thankful, our Father, that uh, we had the opportunity to gather here this morning and to turn our attention to things of a spiritual nature. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. And we're thankful for those who have preserved your word through the years that we can read these words today and uh, understand them to be you, you speaking to us in our day to day. And we pray that you'll be with us in our discussion this morning, that you'll open our hearts and open our minds and open our eyes to the truths that are contained in your word. And may, may they be an encouragement to us as we seek to do your will from day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the uh, main focus of our study is going to be in chapter 44. Chapter 44 and the last uh, few verses of that chapter, uh, verses uh, <clears throat> 24 through 28, and we'll be looking at a few additional passages as well as these verses in here. But I'm, I'm calling this the God of all time uh, <clears throat> because of these verses we have presented to us God's activities throughout time. Past, present, and future. And we'll see how this, this works out here in, the, these, um, in these verses. I reproduced on the first page here the page that appears in my Bible, which is the NIV Bible, because it, it, com- it combines all of these verses here, the last part of chapter 44, all on one page. Now, depending on the version that you have or the printing that you have, it may not uh, include all these verses together, but, but I want you to see how these verses are uh, connected together. You, <clears throat> I don't, uh, if you look, look at the first page of the handout, you can see that they're <clears throat> after the introductory uh, comment that is made in verse 24, which is what the Lord says, uh, your Redeemer who formed you in, in the womb, that there are three sections, and how, how these three sections are separated by a space in between the second, first and second section, and then there's another space uh, right after the, the second section and the, the third section. So it's clearly divided into these three sections here. And uh, you'll notice that as you go down here that each line of each of these sections begins with the word who. There are nine who, who clauses, nine who phrases that appear in, in these verses. Is 
explaining what the introductory statement is made. I am the Lord, and I am the Lord who, I am the Lord who, I am the Lord who, and all the way down through all nine of these who clauses that make up these sections. And you'll notice also that each, the verb tense of each of these sections are in a different tense. In the first section here, um, you see that the uh, verbs are in the past tense. Who made all, made, see that's past tense, who alone stretched past tense, who spread out the earth by himself, past tense. And then the second section, beginning with, uh, if I can make out what that verse is, verse 25, who foils the signs of the prophets. You see, all the verbs are in the present tense. Who foils, who makes, who overthrows, who turns, who carries, who fulfills, and so forth. And then the last section there, beginning in that next section after that final break in the text, here's who says of Jerusalem, again, these verbs are in the future tense. I shall, it shall be inhabited. They shall be dwelt. I will restore them. Who says the weary... I will dry up your streams, so forth. And then the climax comes in the very last verse of that chapter, verse 28, who says, He is my shepherd, who will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. So here we have these three sections, and each of the sections carry, uh, begin with the past, then move on to the present, and then on to the future. So here we have a presentation of God as the God of all time, past, present, and future. And <clears throat> you're aware, of course, that uh, God's activities in the past uh, have been referred to a number of times throughout the book of uh, Isaiah, things that he has done in the past. And also, there are sections in the book of Isaiah that talk about what he's doing in the present. And then, of course, there are passages that uh, point to the future, what God says he's going to do in the future. So, <clears throat> in the book of Isaiah, we have sections that uh, talk about God's activities in past, present, and future. But here, I think it's probably the, <clears throat> the best place where we have all of this kind of brought together and summed up in what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he promises to do in the future. So we'll go through these verses and notice how, <clears throat> how they're uh, arranged and what, uh, what he's talking about in, in these verses. Uh, <clears throat> you'll notice that uh, each section has uh, three lines, each line beginning with the word who. <clears throat> so you have these three sections, and each one of these sections also has three lines in it, or three statements um, following uh, the... Uh, the word who that is describing I am the Lord, who has made all things, and so on, all the way through here. you think there's any significance uh, to the fact that the number three is so prominent here in these verses? Does the number three uh, signify anything to you? There's some may want to speculate that perhaps this is a reference to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's uh, really what's in... Uh, one, one study of Isaiah that I have, 
seems to want to look at anything that has a, a combination in groups of three as an indication or reference to the Trinity. I don't think uh, that this is specifically referring to the Trinity uh, as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but simply as a way of designating God's activity in history, in the past, in the present, and in the future. This is explained by a study of these verses that I've come across in which he talks about the significance of the number three. The prominent role which the number three plays in the structure of this prophetical poem naturally raises the question as to the reason for this remarkable arrangement. As has been already intimated, there is nothing mysterious or mystical in the use of the number three. It is simply the number of the ordinary categories of time, past, present, future. With reference to, uh, reference to each of which the sovereign control of the Almighty is so stressed in these chapters... The first section, the first strophe, deals with the past. The second section, or the second strophe is called, the term strophe refers to these sections that we indicated here, way of uh, the Hebrew poetry um, indicates the the different sections. Um, And the second strophe then describes his present or providential dealings with special reference to current events. As the God of history... He is constantly bringing confusion upon all those who endeavor by unauthorized means to ascertain and control that future which belongs peculiarly to, to him. And, uh, and in the second section here, uh, he refers to these uh, unauthorized um, means of trying to ascertain what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and then the third strophe refers uh, definitely to the future to the time of the return of Israel to their land and the restoration of its uh, desolations, past, present, future. These are the great categories of time. And this great prophetic utterance proclaims the absolute sovereignty of God of Israel over all of them. So, the um, arrangement of these verses... And the uh, tense of the verbs and so on uh, ties in with the idea of the number three. And that's why the number three is so prominent here. Because that's the normal way that we refer to, to time as being past, present, or future. Okay, let's look, look at uh, some of the statements that are made, made in these verses. Verse 24, uh, the first part of verse 24 <clears throat> can be uh, regarded as kind of an introductory to, uh, uh, to the rest of these verses. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. <clears throat> and then it goes on and uh, uh, describes uh, what the Lord has said. But <clears throat> these verses here, these closing verses of the chapter, kind of bring together uh, several things that have already been mentioned throughout this chapter. You notice the Lord says, your Redeemer. Well, already earlier in this chapter, we have reference to, um, uh, to God as the people's Redeemer. Look at verse 6 earlier in this chapter. You see a reference to, this is what the Lord says, He was King and Redeemer. And also in verse 22, 
reference to God as the Redeemer. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So and this is one of the themes that appears earlier in this chapter. And then, who formed you in the womb? Look at verse 2 of, uh, of this chapter that uh, has reference to, He who made you, who formed you in the womb. So that's referring back to, back to that statement. So he goes on and says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Going all the way back in history uh, to the very beginning of creation itself, the reference to <clears throat> stretch out the heavens and spread out the earth, heaven and earth. Does that remind you of the beginning of the Old Testament itself? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, heavens and earth here. So <clears throat> he, he calls the um, attention to the reader to God's activity in the past all the way back to the beginning of creation. <clears throat> and, yes, yes. By myself, yeah. Anywhere else about God? Did he ever say that? Anywhere else? Well, by myself is, yeah. It seems like he's Yes, he's emphasizing that because, because in the earlier cha- uh, earlier verses of this chapter, in fact, this is one of the classic chapters in the Bible about the foolishness of idolatry, and. Uh, <clears throat> The beginning of verse 8, all who make idols are nothing. And he goes all the way through here, through all these verses, all the way down to uh, <clears throat> to about 19 or 20. So he's talking about how the pagan nations try to create their God in the form of idols. And uh, in response to that, God says, I alone have done it. I, didn't, I don't need your idols or uh, any of your gods to do these things because I by myself have done this. Not, uh, don't need these idols at all. We referred to this chapter before about the foolishness of idolatry, how that people cut down a tree in the forest and chop it up into blocks and some of the wood they use for building fire to warm themselves and part of the wood they use to make a fire to cook their food on. And uh, then they take another part of the wood and fashion it into a form, form of, of an idol and fall down and worship it as their God and their creator. So <clears throat> the, I mean, the sarcasm against the uh, idolatry that is mentioned in these verses... <clears throat> Uh, and so when he comes to this uh, statement here, I think it, it has reference to in the context of idolatry that uh, is me by myself have made these things. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> so it, uh, <clears throat> his activities in the past, God's activities in the past. And that begins, of course, God's activities in the course of history. And in the past, at this particular time, God has acted in the past throughout the history of the Israelites. And there are references to that all the way through the book of Isaiah, how God has brought these people, raised them, and settled them in the promised land. 
and that uh, he is the only one who is, uh, who is behind the uh, nation of, of Israel. Okay, so who alone stretched out the heavens? He alone did it. <clears throat> uh, now, of course, uh, future uh, later teachings on the creation would also indicate that he alone also includes uh, the Spirit and the Son. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord uh, hovered over the uh, faces of the deep and he created the world. And uh, in the New Testament, we read how that uh, the Son, Jesus, Jesus Christ, was also involved in the creation. So when he says, who alone, that includes God alone, which includes all that's involved in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and so on. So, <clears throat> he alone did it, not uh, didn't need any help of any of these other idols that, uh, that men have made to uh, try to explain the creation. Spread out the earth by himself, see, by himself. It's, but the my, by himself also includes uh, the, um, the full Godhead, which would be God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the past, his activities in the past. Now, the next section, you see there's a break between those verses and, and the next section here. And you see each line begins with the word who. This is a further explanation of the Lord. I am the Lord who foils the signs of the false prophets. Uh, again, this is a, a re- referred to earlier in this chapter. Look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, of this chapter, where uh, we read, Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me. Who has, uh, uh, what has happened since I established my ancient peoples, and what is yet to come, and let them foretell what will come. So, <clears throat> is God himself uh, who uh, foils the uh, predictions of these false prophets and makes fools of diviners um, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. <clears throat> overthrowing the wise. That reminds you of anything that you read about in the New Testament? What did Paul say about uh, those who are wise in their own eyes? <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, those who think they are wise, but they are foolish. And they're wise, but they become fools. God says he turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, referring to his true prophets in contrast to the false prophets. So this is activity in the present. Uh, carrying out what he has predicted in the past uh, to show that he alone is the one who is able to predict these things and then to bring these things into fulfillment. And then the last section, the the last block of verses here, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towers of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Now, remember that the context uh, of these uh, verses here in this whole section of Isaiah is in the context of the Babylonian captivity. Even though the uh, captivity has not actually taken place, 
Isaiah is describing these things as if it had already taken place. But, uh, <clears throat> and he's, he's uh, encouraging the people. And this, uh, this section of Isaiah is specially designed to be read by those who are in exile, in the Babylonian exile. And these are chapters to comfort and to encourage these people. Remember, this whole section begins uh, in chapter 40 with the uh, statement, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Well, by when Isaiah wrote these words, it had not even begun yet. And yet he's speaking as though they are already in exile and that it's coming to the close of the time of the exile and that the hard service has been completed. This is sometimes referred to as the, uh, in the Old Testament and in the prophets, as the prophetic perfect. That is, the perfect tense of the Hebrew verb is used to describe something as if it is already completed but is yet still to happen in the future. So he describes it as if it has already taken place. And so these verses are especially designed to be read as an encouragement to those who are in Babylonian exile, even though the exile itself has not yet taken place. So he says to Jerusalem that you will be inhabited. Uh, Of course, uh, when the people were in exile in Babylon... The city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were torn down, and they were taken into exile as captives. And uh, the city shall be rebuilt, the temple shall be be rebuilt and restored. Who says uh, of the watery deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your streams. What do you suppose that has reference to? Does it remind you of anything of God drying up the waters and drying up the deep? What did God do when the people of Israel left Egypt and they came to the Red Sea? He parted the waters and the people passed over on dry ground. So, <clears throat> he... Uh, <clears throat> This may have a reference to what God has done in the past and what he will do in the future in the bringing of the people in exile back to their homeland. I, he says, the water deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams so that they can pass through on dry ground. And then the final verse of this chapter, he says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. This is one of those passages in Isaiah that has caused all sorts of problems with with those who are trying to make sense of what is being written here, because Cyrus didn't come on the scene until 150 years later after this. So how in the world... Could Isaiah talk about a person who isn't even born yet and won't be born for 150 years and even uh, even predict what he is going to do, that he is going to be the one, naming him by name, specifically by name, and he will accomplish all that I please. Well, this is why there are many uh, modern critical 
uh, <clears throat> students of the Old Testament, the modern critical um, <clears throat> individuals who reject the idea that this, uh, these verses could possibly have been written by Isaiah because Isaiah lived 150 years before the time of Cyrus. So how could Isaiah know anything about Cyrus uh, that long before he was even born? Um, this is one of those passages that clearly indicates the divine revelation that is given to God. But God is the God of the past, present, and the future. God knows what's going to happen in the future. And he reveals uh, by inspiration to Isaiah that the person who is going to be the one to lead the people of the, uh, the exiles back to their homeland is going to be a man by the name of Cyrus who will release uh, uh, the captives and allow them to return to, to their homeland. And uh, we, we see that this is exactly is, is how it happened. Um, <clears throat> right, exactly, yes. There really is no difference. Uh, it, it just uh, identifies more clearly what is going to take place and who's going to be involved in it. There's not very many passages that talk about a specifically a specific individual that's going to uh, carry out these things in the future. There are there are several several, but the very few where it is so specific in predicting who it is that's going to going to do do these things. Um, <clears throat> the people of Israel themselves are not yet in the, oh, oh, Assyrian, Assyrian captivity. Yeah, Assyrian captivity. Yeah, the Assyrian captivity that, that, that has already taken place, and that has to do mainly with the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, <clears throat> and yes, at the... Uh, and we we haven't looked at the uh, the passages that specifically have to do with the Syrians, but there are a good number of, of chapters that deal with the Assyrian period that uh, describe uh, the coming of the Syrians to mainly the, the uh, northern kingdom, <clears throat> the northern kingdom of Israel. Now remember the the two different terms: Judah and Israel. Judah referring to southern kingdom, and. Uh, <clears throat> Israel, the term that's normally used, referred to the northern kingdom. And Isaiah is mainly concerned with the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. You, you recall at the very beginning of the, uh, of the book where he says that uh, this is the vision that he saw uh, uh, during the reigns of uh, Ahaz, Jothan, and uh, Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. <clears throat> Uh, the vision during the the reigns of these kings, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> it's the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's his main thought. His main concern, because that's where Isaiah was living in the southern kingdom, and his main concern is with Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And 
even though that's his main concern, he does bring in what is going to happen to the northern kingdom as well. And the coming of the Syrians to destroy the northern kingdom and take the northern kingdom in exile and the destruction of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and the bringing in of foreign peoples into the capital of Samaria of the northern kingdom. And that, of course, was the beginning of the people that we know as the Samaritans, mainly from the New Testament. So, yes, yes, the Assyrian captivity has already taken place. But these verses are referring to what's going to take place in the future in the Babylonian captivity. And the one that's going to be used to, <clears throat> to bring about the restoration of the people is this Cyrus that's mentioned here, this Persian king, king of Persia, <clears throat> who's uh, going to lead uh, or allow the people to return to, to their homeland. Um, <clears throat> Look at the top of page uh, three, uh, or, or uh, the whole of page three, where we have God's evaluation of Cyrus. What did God think about Cyrus? How does God refer to this Persian king Cyrus? Um, this quotation from uh, Edward J. Young's commentary on uh, Isaiah is good to note. We said at this particular point in the history of redemption, a Persian king is given the task of gathering the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the use of this designation, Cyrus is greatly honored, for to shepherd God's people is the task of the Messiah. And Cyrus here stands as a type of the Lord's servant, the true Messiah and shepherd of his people, who gives his life for the sheep. Now, The very next verse of the next chapter, chapter 45 and verse 1, says this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. See, it continues on here and describes a little bit more about who this Cyrus is. He is described as the Lord's anointed. And uh, I believe we pointed out before that the original word, that is, the Hebrew word that is used is the word Mashiach, which is translated as Messiah. The Lord says to his Messiah, to Cyrus. Uh, and, the, of course, the Greek translation of that Hebrew word is the word Christos, which is the word Christ. So uh, <clears throat> I believe I mentioned before that here Cyrus is referred to as the Messiah and as the Christ. <clears throat> if you use both the Hebrew and the Greek term that is used here. So in, in this sense, Cyrus is recognized by God with a very... <clears throat> a very significant designation. Um, so uh, on the uh, rest of the page three of the handout here, we have uh, quotations of uh, how God has described Cyrus and what God thinks of Cyrus. Uh, who says, uh, he will accomplish all that I please, all, all that God pleases. Uh, his, uh, that is God's anointed, refers to him as God's anointed, the Mashiach, uh, the Christos, Messiah Christ, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations. I will go before you, uh, <clears throat> who calls you by name, and I have these uh, verses here as you look at to see, see where these statements are taken from. Uh, he, he has a title of honor, 
Uh, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Now, here it recognizes that Cyrus is not a believer or uh, at least does not acknowledge God, but yet God says, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, in, in verse 13 of that chapter. Uh, from the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. That uh, more likely has reference to Cyrus. Uh, the Lord's chosen, chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon, as he uh, says in chapter 48 and verse 14. Uh, yes, I have called him, that is called Cyrus. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. Chapter 48 and verse 15. Then there's one, one section uh, in chapter 49 that I, I just raised the question, uh, whether or not this possibly might refer to, to Cyrus. Chapter 49 and verses uh, 5 uh, through 7, where it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It doesn't specifically name Cyrus here as the, what this is referred to. But in reading these words, it suggested to me that this possibly might be referring to Cyrus as the one who's going to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. The reference here is. Um, but this reference to them be, to be a light for the Gentiles, I don't see how that could fit in with, with Cyrus. Um, <clears throat> he is referred to as God's servant, as it is here in chapter 49, as, uh, as we uh, see in these verses back in chapter 44 and 45. So <clears throat> that's one passage that possibly might refer to Although this is in the section of Isaiah that is talking about the Lord's servant, that is normally identified as the messianic passages uh, in, in Isaiah. But anyway, God is going to be using this pagan king, the uh, king of Persia, to bring about his purposes. <clears throat> so. Uh, <clears throat> So we have a passage in the Old Testament itself that describes what actually did take place later on. And this is found in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I have that quoted at the bottom of page 3 and top of the, of the next page, page 4. That passage in Ezra ch- uh, chapter 1, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And it quotes from uh, what, uh, uh, what uh, Cyrus has written about the people and his releasing the people, allow them to return back to their homeland in Israel. This Cyrus says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. 
Does that suggest to you that maybe Cyrus is a believer in God? This pagan king who is uh, allowing the people to return to their homeland. And this is what the Bible, the book of Ezra, the first uh, few chapters, and also in Second Chronicles, the last few verses of Second Chronicles, it also quotes this letter or this statement that Cyrus made in the sending of the uh, people of Israel back to their homeland in Israel. Uh, almost exactly the same quotation that, that we have right here. Uh, that uh, he refers to God as the Lord, the God of heaven. Is that expressing that Cyrus is believing in God as the God of heaven? Um, may his God be with him, so on, Jerusalem, uh, to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. He does recognize that the Lord is the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Fortunately, we have uh, another <clears throat> direct quotation from Cyrus himself in what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder, and that's what's on page four here. The Cyrus Cylinder is a little uh, round uh, barrel-like uh, uh, piece of, uh, uh, that contains in uh, the ancient written form the actual account that Cyrus made of his releasing the people from Egypt. So here we have direct archaeological confirmation of what we have here in, in the scriptures, that Cyrus indeed was the one who, who allowed the, the captives in Babylon to return to their homelands. But look at, and at the bottom of page 4 is uh, the, what is found on this clay cylinder from Cyrus, and see if that suggests that Cyrus was a believer in God. He says, Marduk, the great Lord, and Marduk was the, uh, the god of Babylon. <clears throat> Marduk, Marduk, the great Lord, a protector of the people's worshipers, uh, beheld uh, be with pleasure his, that is Cyrus's, good deeds and his upright mind, and therefore offered him a march against his city, Babylon. Marduk, the great Lord, I was daily endeavoring to worship him. Well, now, how could Cyrus be a, worship, a worshiper of Marduk and yet be a believer in God? So this would suggest that Cyrus perhaps was not a true believer in God because he also worshipped Marduk, the Babylonian god. Marduk, the great lord, was well pleased with my deeds and sent friendly messages to myself. Cyrus, the king who worships him, uh, to Cam- Cambyses, my son, the offspring of my loins, as well as all my troops. And we all praised his great Godhead joyously, standing before him in peace. Furthermore, I settled upon the command of Marduk, the great Lord, all the gods of Sumer and Akkad. He brought in these foreign gods to Babylon, whom Nebuchadnezzar has brought into Babylon to the anger of the Lord of the gods. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their cities ask daily Baal and Nebel. Baal and Nebel, two more of the, uh, the pagan gods uh, that were worshipped by the people. Uh, for a long life for me, and may they recommend me to him, to Marduk, my lord. And they may say this, Cyrus, the king who worships you in Cambyses, his son, all of them I settled in peaceful place. I endeavored to fortify, repair their dwelling places. 
And this is taken from a collection of ancient uh, documents from the Near East. <clears throat> and uh, they've been studied and translated and collected in the uh, uh, publication known as the Ancient Near Eastern Text Relating to the Old Testament. So, with this uh, description that Cyrus gives about himself, do you think Cyrus was a believer in God? <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, does it? Yes, yes, he did do this. Yes. Yes, this was a political move on his, on his part to allow the people to return and re, yes. Princeton University in New Jersey is where one of my grandsons. Oh yes. Teaches. Oh oh yeah oh yes he teaches there now he's still a teacher there now. Yes. yes. Uh huh. Well. Well, that's that's interesting to know. Yeah, Princeton University is one of the. Ivy League universities uh, in the uh, eastern part of the nation, and uh, this uh, <clears throat> this uh, publication on the Near Eastern texts, ancient Near Eastern texts uh, relating to the Old Testament, was published by Princeton University Press. Um, <clears throat> a textbook that was used in class that I took in archaeology was written was also published by Princeton University uh, Press. Light from the Ancient East. Um, is a book on archaeology uh, uh, of the Bible, and it was published by Princeton University uh, Press. Princeton University Press does uh, publish uh, a good number of works that relate to the Old Testament. So, so this is where this quotation from uh, Cyrus comes from. Okay, uh, I have to bring this uh, to a close real quickly. Uh, the significance of God being the God of all time, being God of the, of the present uh, the past, the present, and the future. And uh, <clears throat> I, I won't have time to, time to read uh, this uh, statement of the significance of this for the realization that God has acted in the past and He is acting in the present and He will continue to act in the future. So this should be an encouragement to us that, yes, God is the God of all time. He is the God of history, and He controls the affairs of history, and that He will accomplish what He promised He would do as we see the uh, predictions and the fulfillment of these things that He predicts and that they actually do come about. So we can be assured that what we have from God and the promises that he makes that he will accomplish these. Okay, so this is our last session, and next week I understand we're going to be uh, beginning uh, with another teacher on the the parables, so we look forward to uh, coming back uh, for those sessions. Let's uh, bow our heads as we uh, uh, look forward to our worship together in just a few moments and close uh, this session. Our Father, we're thankful that 
We have had this time to study your word, and we're thankful that you have revealed yourself in time, that you are the God of the past, the present, and the future. And we pray that this will encourage us and help us to live in a way that we might look forward to the promises that you have given to us that will take place in the future. And we pray that our lives will be in, in such a way that, uh, that we can uh, look forward to this uh, accomplishment of your promises in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.